0: Hallelujah, literally praise be to God, that we can say this morning, all I have is, and is he enough? Absolutely. Even though it's a simple song, it's rich in theology, talking about the atonement, the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, so we rejoice in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, it is so good to be here with you this morning Uh, Always a joy and a privilege to stand in this pulpit and preach the Word of God. And this morning, we're going to be talking about something that is near and dear to my heart. In fact, since the fall in the Garden of Eden, it has been a constant part of our human existence. Every person who has ever lived has had to face it, and sadly, many have given into it resulting in dangerous and often deadly consequences. What is it, you ask? Well, thanks for asking. Idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry happens when we substitute someone or something else for God. It's who or what we worship or long for or begin to pursue or put our hope in or begin to trust in. It's when we lust after or want something so desperately that we are willing to sacrifice our biblical principles of right and wrong just to possess it. And how does God feel about idolatry, church? You seem confused. How does God view it? He hates it. Is it any wonder in Exodus 20, verse 3, what was the first command? You shall have no other what? God's before me. God is a jealous God. He is not going to share his name, his glory, his reputation with anyone or anything. And it's why he rebuked Israel over it in Jeremiah 2.13. Jeremiah 2.13, we know this verse. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's people began to abandon the source of their spiritual salvation and sustenance, the Lord. Literally, the fountain of living waters. And they began digging out other cisterns. Do you know what a cistern is? It's something that you dig out. It's an under, underground device that's used to hold rainwater. They essentially exchanged life-giving water for a cracked cistern that could hold no water. Meaning what? At the end of the day, they stopped being satisfied in God and God alone. They started looking for satisfaction elsewhere. Think about it. Where did Israel look for satisfaction? When they began to believe that God didn't know what they needed, when they began to think, certainly God is not aware of our difficult circumstances, when they lost trust in God, who or what did they look to? Often other gods, didn't they? Moses is up on the mountain with God in Exodus 32, and what, is, what do they say? Hey, Aaron, make us a god. As of Moses and the god who led us out here, we don't know what happened to him. Would you make us a god who will go before us and what? Lead us. They turned to other gods. They also turned to alliances. God said, go into the land and make no alliances. I am the Lord. I'm enough. And they got in there and said, God, do you see how big these people are? We better make an alliance with them or they're going to kill us. I mean, we know better than God, right? What about foreign wives? Uh Uh-oh. Why did God not let Israel marry foreign wives? Because just like Solomon, he knew what would they do to the heart of that young man if they were following other gods. God's. Turn them away. And what did Israel do time and time again? As we read the Old Testament, we find cycle after cycle after cycle of God's people thinking that someone or something other than God would satisfy them, resulting in dangerous consequences, rebellion, rebellion resulting discipline and judgment from God, war, conflict, shame, guilt, broken families, hypocrisy with generations rejecting Yahweh, their God. Some of you are like, well, I'm glad he's going to talk about Old Testament idolatry. Is idolatry something that only happened in the Old Testament? or places like India, Africa, Asia? no. Where else does idolatry take place in your heart and mine? So for the next two weeks, we're going to examine idolatry. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14. In this text, verses 3 to 8, we are going to find five principles describing how idols get into our heart and their dangerous consequences. Five principles describing how idols get into our heart and their dangerous consequences. And my prayer is for you and for myself that as we read from the word of God, we would learn how to identify the dangerous idols of the heart so that we might in turn learn how to deal with them biblically. Let's read verses 1 and 2 just to establish some context. Ezekiel chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, so here we find this delegation of elders of Israel, and they are arriving at the prophet Ezekiel's house, seeking counsel from the Lord. They go and find the prophet, because the prophet speaks for God, and God is going to speak through Ezekiel. But as we'll see, particularly next week, God, knowing their hearts, is not going to give them the answer they crave. Sometimes he doesn't give you and me the answer we desire either, does he? But he is going to counsel them and give them the counsel they desperately need in order to deal with the dangerous idols of their heart. Now here in Ezekiel 14 and throughout this book, Ezekiel, was a priest and a prophet. He's serving among the Jewish exiles in Babylon during the last days of Judah's decline and downfall. And this happens before the final destruction of Jerusalem. You remember there were three waves where the king of Babylon came in and took captives from Jerusalem to Babylon. We believe Ezekiel was taken somewhere in that second wave. And his ministry lasted somewhere between 592 and 570 B.C., Ezekiel was a man of visions whose message stretches from the horror of Judah's fall by the Babylonians to the eventual restoration of Israel. In this book, we're going to find his twofold theme. In chapters 1 to 32 are filled with condemnation, and chapters 33 to 48 are filled with consolation. So we go from horror to hope. That's the theme of this book. Where does chapter 14 fit in? The first or the second part? First. Falls into the middle of Ezekiel's judgment on Judah. God speaking through the prophet. Why? Because her prophets are counterfeits. And her elders are idolatrous. And as you and I know, as the leaders go, so go the rest of the people. People. If you have false prophets and idolatrous elders, what is going to happen to the people of God? It's gonna influence them as well. So who are these elders of Israel? I think most scholars agree that these elders probably did not travel from Jerusalem just to see the prophet. They were from Jerusalem, but they were probably exiles along with everyone else. They were already there in Babylon. These elders of Israel were part of the exiles whom Ezekiel had been ministering to. Now, this is key. What is one motivation that is driving these elders of Israel to seek out God's prophet, to get a word and counsel from the Lord? Think about this with me. If you're an exile who's been taken captive against your will, to a foreign land, stripped from your home, taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, what is it you want? Let me help you with that. Just imagine for a moment if a group of rowdy, liberal Californians come to Texas, and it could happen, and they take 10,000 of us, and they take us back to their homeland, The city of angels. And they force us to live in downtown Los Angeles. The horror. What would you want more than anything? I love the concrete jungle. Let's live here. Deep in the heart of Texas. What do you want to do? Go home. Go back to the way it was. Give me my guns back. There's a reason we have a cannon on our shirt. What does it say? Come and take it. You getting the idea? You'd want to go home. You'd want to go back to the way it was. You'd want to be free to live and worship the way that you wanted. These elders were no different. They longed to return back to Jerusalem. And God would use judgment to drive them to repentance so that his people would come to know that he is the Lord. When you have time later, just read chapter 20 of Ezekiel to see the proof of this. They were just like their forefathers coming out of Egypt. It's the same cycle, the same message. God's going to use judgment to reclaim their hearts. But again, as the theme, just as judgment would come, Part of Ezekiel's job is to remind them, so too would restoration. So with that general historical context, let's begin to work through verse 3 this morning. And we're going to get through our first two principles this morning, describing how idols get into our hearts and their dangerous consequences. And the next week, come back and we'll finish the remaining three. So let's look at this first principle that we find in the first part of verse 3. We set up our heart idols... We set up our heart idols. Notice, let me read verses 3 to 8. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore, speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I the Lord will be brought to give him an answer in the manner, the matter and view of the multitude of his idols, in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent. And turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel, or of the immigrants who stay in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself, I the Lord will be brought to answer him in my own person." I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from among my people. So you will know what? That I am the Lord God. Notice in verse 3 Son of man, God is speaking to Ezekiel, Son of man, these men have set up their idols where? In their hearts. These elders have idols. They're rooted in the desires of their heart. And guess what? Who's the one that put them there? Think about that. If you're an elder of Israel, do you think you could find some reason to blame your heart idols on? After all, where were they? Exiled, captive, living under a foreign power. Some of their brethren were still back in Jerusalem, worshiping the Lord, but they were not. They could have blamed their circumstances. They could have blamed played. their victims. I'm a victim. In fact, who could they have blamed? Do you ever have a difficult circumstance and the first thing that pops into your head is, God, why? Has that ever happened to you? Maybe it's just me. God, why? If we're not careful, what are we tempted to do with that question? Blame the Lord. These elders had lots of things or circumstances or people to put their blame on. But who does God say the blame primarily resides upon? Who put their idols there? They did. And we're no different. If we have idols in our heart, we can't blame our spouse. Lord, you don't know what I have to live with. You can't blame the government. You can't blame your unruly kids, your unreasonable boss. You can't blame COVID-19. For a season there, we were blaming everything on COVID, weren't we? Yeah. You can't blame it on Satan. Satan made me do it. You can't blame it on anyone or anything else. It wasn't our circumstances that forced us to set them up or some other person. We set up idols in our heart. Now, there's no question the Lord might use those difficult circumstances or those people, those difficulties to help expose the idols of our heart. But ultimately, we are the ones who put them there just like these elders of Israel And notice what he says. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces. Think about what he's saying there. They've committed themselves. They've intentionally fixed their state of mind on their idolatrous ways. It's like they've taken something precious and they've held it up and they've fixed their gaze on it and set it up right in front of their face. And if they have set their gaze and fixed their gaze on that, what have they turned from? In this case, who? You turn from the Lord and you fix your gaze on something or someone else. They've lost trust in God. He's not giving them what they want. He's not answering their prayers. Where is God? Look how bad it is. God, why have you forsaken us? turn from God to someone or something else and because God knows their heart he exposes their hidden sin and while we're not told exactly what these idols are it's possible that they were enamored by some of the idolatrous Babylonian practices that were all around them again this was just like their forefathers did in fact look at Ezekiel chapter 20 let's just read a couple passages like father like Son, Ezekiel 20, notice what it says in verse 7, I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Who is he talking about? Who struggled with the idols of Egypt? Their forefathers. He's talking about past generation. Verse 8, but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me and they did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. This whole chapter just goes on about all of the trouble that Israel brought upon themselves by not listening to God. Even more likely, they probably wanted to go back to Jerusalem to engage in the idolatrous false worship that they had been practicing before they were exiled. You say, Chris, how do you know that? Turn back to chapter 8. In chapter 8, Ezekiel is brought to Jerusalem through a vision of God. It says literally his spirit is plucked by God and brought into Jerusalem. It's pretty cool. How do we know that? Ezekiel 8.3 He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. And then notice what it says in verse 9. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered and I looked, and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things All the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. Standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. What's taking place here? Worship. Who are they worshiping? Not God. Notice verse 12. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, yet you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. Verse 16, then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord. And if you have your back to the temple, which way are you facing their faces toward the east, and they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. What are they worshiping? The sun, not God. They're doing it in the dark, implying what? They think nobody sees, nobody knows. And what's the reason? God has forsaken us. He's abandoned us. This is where this group of elders were plucked out of, when they were taken and exiled into Babylon. And they're thinking about all those elders of Israel who still have power and authority, and they get to worship God however they want, and what do you think they long for? To go back, to have it the way it was. Outwardly serving God, but inwardly seeking and worshiping idols. There they could follow, worship, and serve God their way, and God was not having it. One of the questions on the back of your handout, I've got Deuteronomy 8, one to three. Why does God often bring us into the wilderness? Why does he test us? Take the time to read that verse, you're gonna find two reasons, to humble us and to show us what's in our heart. God will take us into the wilderness of difficulty. He will exile you and me sometimes for the explicit purpose to teach us to humbly depend on him for all things and to show us, I don't know how I'm going to respond until I get into the desert. Well, now I know how I'm gonna respond. What's in my heart did what? Came out. Is God using this exile to test these elders of Israel and all the exiles? Absolutely. It's also possible that these elders of Israel, the idols, were connected with the false prophets in chapter 13, 13 who are prospering off of lies and deceit. Just look at chapter 13, verse nine. So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will have no place in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel, that you may know that what? What's the point of all of this? That you may know that I am the Lord It's a call to repent. In fact, look over at Ezekiel 33. Wish we had time to study this whole book. It's a fascinating journey. Ezekiel 33, look in verse 31. I think this is probably what was going on in their hearts as they come to receive counsel through Ezekiel the prophet. Ezekiel 33, verse 31, it says, they come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them, for they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after gain. What is that verse describing? Someone who comes and says, I want to hear a word from the Lord and they hear the word from the Lord and what difference does it make? None. They don't intend to do them. Why? Because there's something else driving them greater than a love and affection and a fear of the Lord. They look pious. They're asking for a word from the Lord. We want want counsel, Ezekiel. Give us a word from God. They have no intention of obeying and following God. Does this take place in the church today? What do you think? Do we have people who come, sit, listen, and leave with no intention of doing anything that they just heard? This can be you. It can be me. We're so good at hiding our idols. We modify our behavior to go along with the church, to fit into Christianity. But inwardly, we worship another. I love what Pastor Brad Bigney in his book, Gospel Treason, says he says it this way, often the essence of our idolatry is taking a good thing and turning it into a God thing, and then it becomes a bad thing. Was that simple enough for you and me? Even a good thing can become a God thing, and then it becomes a what? A bad thing. And by God thing, what do I mean? It takes the place of God. That's what I put my hope in. Even a good thing can become a God thing, which will in turn become a bad thing. For example, some of you have a desire to get married. Is that a good desire? Can be. But if that becomes your driving desire, your God, what will that desire end up becoming? It will drive you to some point where you may give in and break down and not follow the biblical principles that you know to be true to get what you want. How about this one, to find a job, to provide? I, I just want to get a job so I can provide for my family. Is that a bad desire? No, that's a good desire, but if it becomes a God thing to you, it will inevitably become an idolatrous bad thing. How about this? I just want my husband to love me and I even have a verse in the Bible where it says you should. And what is the guy saying? If she can just figure out how to respect me, we would get along. Ooh. Submit. Can he have a verse for that? He's got his verse. She's got her verse. He's got his verse. It's a good thing. It's a God-honoring thing. But when it becomes your God thing, it becomes a bad thing. I just want to have friends. I'm lonely. What happens when your desire to have friends becomes your everything? You become a man pleaser more than a God pleaser, possibly. How about this one? I just want my children to be saved. Is that a good desire? I don't know. I feel like you're trying to trick me. Is that a good desire? You're like, I'm not saying nothing now. Is it a good desire? Absolutely. But what happens when that becomes your main desire? What will you use to save your children? Control. You get it? I will use law. I will use scripture. I will use rules to save my children. Who has the power to save your children? God does. A good thing becomes a God thing, becomes a bad thing. Brad Bigney, I've got this on the back of your handout. Simple definition of an idol is an idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. Did you get that? An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. What could that be? Anything, anyone. And sometimes we're aware we're doing it. Patterns of explosive anger or crippling anxiety. You know, for the dad who doesn't get what he wants and he just explosive anger. He's like, yeah, I'm probably struggling with idols of the heart. There's something I want, something I'm not getting. It may be more obvious. But the reality is often we are oblivious to the idols that often rule us. And that's partly why idolatry is so very dangerous. Turn with me to Jeremiah 17.9. Jeremiah 17.9. We know this passage, don't we? Jeremiah 17.9. Some of you have it memorized. What does Jeremiah 17.9 say? The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately what? Sick. Who can understand it? What does this mean? My heart can be so deceitful. I can be so self-deceived that the idols that I set up in my heart, I can be totally oblivious, not even see it. You ever had someone say this, exercise is my life? And you look at them and you're like, I can tell. You are in the best shape I've ever, ever, ever seen. You could probably kill me with your pinky. Right? I mean, they have to walk through a door like this. You know, they're coming and they have to go sideways. Because they're just ripped. How about someone who says this, I don't love money... I love to work. You're like, well, I guess that's good. 1 Timothy 6 says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So that's good. What might that person mean when they say they love to work? What has become their God? The satisfaction they get from work or achieving or climbing or building or having people recognize Maybe their identity is in work. How about this one? Someone says, my kids are everything to me. Does that sound good? If you're a kid, you're like, yeah, give me ice cream. If I'm everything to you, four scoops. Should your kids be everything to you? Mom, tell me. I mean, not that dads gonna struggle with this. I'm like, I don't know where all these little little people, I don't know where they all came from. One minute I woke up, and I know there's little people running around the house. My kids are everything to me. How about this? The dad said, hey, it's not wrong to want a, a moment of peace, is it? As he yells to his kids, hey, kids, stop fighting. I'm trying to watch the game. I need a little peace over here. This is why Brad Bigdy says that our idols bind us and blind us. The idols that you and I set up, they bind us. How do they bind us? They bind us by making us a slave to the ruling desires of our heart. Whatever it is I want, desire, need, feel like I have the right or expectation, that will rule me. And I am bound. How do these idols blind us? Well, they blind us from seeing God, from seeing ourselves and others the way that we should. Isn't it amazing that if I have an idol in my heart, an expectation, that idol distorts my ability, my ability to perceive what is really going on so that I interpret all of what's going on through the lens of my idol, and now I am incapable of seeing what's really going on because my idol becomes the lens. Everything, my, my pre, preconceived notions, my desires, my, my expectations, all of those get overlaid. And I'm blinded to what's really happening. Again, people who have idols in their heart, do they see God rightly No, that's part of the problem because if you saw God rightly, you wouldn't be running to someone or something else, right? God, again, think of the songs we sing. Christ is enough. He's worthy. He's glorious. If I see Christ rightly, my affection for him will turn me from the idols of the heart. But if we're bound and blind... This is dangerous, isn't it? For oblivious to the idolatry, sin on the inside will eventually seep up and manifest itself on the outside, right? Those ruling desires, those wants, those expectations, the need, it's gonna come out. From the mouth speaks the heart. Think about this. Are complainers aware that they complain? You ever worked or lived with a complainer? Man, it is so hot, I can't wait for winter. And then winter comes and what do they say? Man, it is so cold, I can't wait for summer. Well, make up your mind. Not even aware. You ever interacted with someone who overtalks? You literally have three sentences to say and you're halfway through your second one and you can see them just going, <laughs> yeah, but what about me? And then they go on and tell you a story. They take your story and what do they do? They go way over there. Like, I was talking about this. How did we get talking about global warming? I just wanted to know where the peanut butter was. They're clueless. And I know I pick on dads a lot. But I think angry dads, harsh, unkind, Unloving dads, unloving husbands often have no clue how harsh they've become. It's become a habitual response when the idols that they have set up in their heart, the desire for respect, the desire for control, peace at any cost, when those rule, when something blocks them from their heart's desire. takes it away they explode aren't you thankful that there's a Jeremiah 17 verse 10 eh? the heart is more deceitful than all else is desperately sick who could understand it notice what verse 10 says I the Lord search the heart I test the mind You and I may be bound and we may be blind, but who is not bound or blind? Aren't you thankful? Who knows your idols? Who knows your struggles? Who knows your difficulty? Who knows that you are but dust? Who knows how much you can handle? God does. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows where you are. He knows your situation. He searches the heart. He tests the mind. And this is honestly why we need God's help. To see our idols, to free us from them. This is part of your homework in preparation for next week. Uh, I have it on the back sheet if you forget. I want to encourage you to pray Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24 at least once a day. To humbly follow the psalmist's example. Search me, O God, and test me. See if there be any, what? Anxious thoughts. Anxious thoughts. In me, See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me, what? In the everlasting way. Would you commit with me to pray that every day and say, Lord, I don't know if I see the idols of my heart, the idols that I have set up, Lord, because my heart is so deceitful and wicked and sometimes I deceive even myself, but Lord, you see them, so would you test me and would you show me what they are? Just like these elders of Israel, we are the ones who set up our heart idols. And notice the first result in our next principle. Second part of verse 3, our heart idols trip us up. Not only do we set up our heart idols, but our heart idols trip us up. Because when we set up idols in the heart, whether we're aware we're doing or not, what is the sobering end result? our idols become stumbling blocks. Notice what it says. Ezekiel 14. Son of man, these, mans have set, these men have set up their idols in their hearts, have put right before their faces what? The stumbling block of their iniquity. This Hebrew word can be translated obstacle. Uh, in Isaiah 57.14, it's translated Barrier. Here in Ezekiel, it's called a stumbling block. What do all of those translations of this same Hebrew word have in common? It has the idea of something that blocks the way. It trips up those walking along. And is this the first time that Israel has had stumbling blocks in their heart? No. Ezekiel 7, 19, their silver and gold will not satisfy. Their sin will be an occasion of stumbling. What's that? The love for silver and gold, the love of money will trip them up. We see it used in Ezekiel 18, 30, where their iniquity becomes a stumbling block. And in Ezekiel 44, 12, all showing that their idols and the sin that surrounds them would cause them to stumble and fall, leading to their eventual ruin. Throughout the book of Ezekiel. And guess what? This concept of a stumbling block is also used where? It's not just in the Old Testament. Where else? In the New. Think of Matthew 16, 23. Jesus rebukes Peter, calls him Satan, tells him he is a what? Peter, you are a stumbling block. And then what does Jesus tell him? Because you're setting your interest, your heart, not on God's interest, but on whose? Man's, your own. Don't tell me not to go to the cross, Peter. Do you know what you're asking? That's what Satan wants. Don't be a stumbling block to me. Or how about Matthew 18, verses 7 and 9? Jesus gets radical with our stumbling blocks, the things that tempt us, the things that trip us up. And exhorts us to cut off the hand or the foot to pluck out the eye that causes us to what? Stumble. Are we getting a clearer picture of what a stumbling block is, how it functions? Ultimately, it's something we can't get around without it tripping us up. And it relates, don't miss this, both to what we believe and how we behave. It's not just the outside, it's the inside. Our heart heart idols trip us up. Our house, we have an actual antenna. I figure if the government's going to give me television for free, why pay for it? Uh, We have digital free TV. Channel 39.4. It's called Fail Army. Now, don't judge me. Now, I know the minute I say that, some of you are going to start judging me. Don't judge me. My kids and I, we could sit there for hours if we had time and watch clip after clip of people failing. It is hilarious. How many ways a person can step, can trip, stumble, fall. It is amazing. So I can tell you're judging me right now. It's amazing to see how many things can cause a grown man to fall on his face. A rubber chicken. Picture of a chicken, an actual chicken. Have you ever seen a chicken chase a grown man? It is hilarious until the chicken catches up to him, gets tangled in his feet, and then what happens? They both fall. The chicken plops over here, the man pops over here, they gaze, and what happens? The chicken, it's all over again, and they're chasing him again. It's hilarious. A child's toy, an actual child. A tree root. Ice. Ice is one of my favorites because they never see it coming. You're walking down the stairs. Bye, honey. And then what? Whoop. And he doesn't just stop down the stairs. He goes down the driveway and into the street. And literally, he's going a block. He can't stop himself. Ice. Or how about this one? This is probably one of my favorites. A dog on a leash. Especially when it's one of those exercises, my everything people. People. They're running in their little matching tracksuit, their brand new Nikes. They got this little golden retriever, doot, 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 leash, and all of a sudden squirrel, and what happens? The dog is chasing the squirrel, and pretty soon it wraps around the guy, and he's tumbling, falling. The dog's over here, the squirrel's over there, laughing in a tree. And we laugh right with them. It's a dangerous world out there. That's what I've concluded after watching Fail Army. There are a lot of things that have the potential to trip us up, to cause us to stumble and to fall, and often it catches us unaware, doesn't it? We have no idea that chicken is going to attack us. Sometimes the guy gets up holding his back or arm or head in pain, like, ah! Sometimes the scene ends because the guy is not moving, the cameraman runs to help. That's when the laughing stops, isn't it? That's when the hospital bills begin, or even worse, a funeral. And the tripping and falling of these Jewish exiles was no laughing matter. The stumbling block of their iniquity, the sinful heart desires, drove them to pursue their evil way, ultimately defying God and His will. God, not Thy will be done, our will. And isn't it interesting how their idolatry was mapped onto their past, their present, and their future? I don't know if you've ever thought of idols of the heart having a past element, a present element, and a future element. More often than not, they do. What was the past element of the idolatry of these Jewish elders? They wanted it like it was where? In Jerusalem. This is just like Israel leaving Egypt And saying, well, at least in Egypt we had leeks and onions. We want to go back to Egypt. It's not that they were abandoning God. They weren't rejecting God, becoming pagans. They simply wanted to worship God their way. Just like they did in Jerusalem. What about the present They're going to Ezekiel to get a word from the Lord. What do they want? They want to be out of exile. What do they want to hear from God? Tomorrow is the day of your what? Freedom. Then they'd have the freedom, present tense, to follow God their way, all the while practicing their hidden abominations in the dark in pursuit of the pleasure of self. Think about this with me. They wanted the appearance of godliness, but not the toil of following God's way. They wanted the blessing, but not the passionate pursuit of God. Just look at chapter 7, 8, 13, 18, 33, 44, to name a few. All of those chapters are filled with this. What about the future? Saw the past, present, what about the future? What was their hope Centered on, future tense, assurance that God would give them what they wanted. Their future happiness was wrapped up in God granting their wish through the prophet Ezekiel, deliverance from Babylon, freedom to worship God their way. And just like them, isn't it amazing how easily our idols cause us to fall into sin? In fact, we even use this as a term, don't we? If someone is no longer walking with the Lord, if they've left the church, what do we say? Oh, they're like, hey, what what happened to Susie? What do you say? Oh, she what? Fell away from the church. She fell. If a pastor or ministry leader commits sin to such an extent that he has to step down out of ministry, what do you say? He what out of ministry? Fell fill out a ministry. The stay-at-home mom says, you know, I think today's the day I'm going to become a drunk because I can't seem to maintain my physical appearance and my health. They are everything to me. You think she just wakes up one day and says that? When did that idolatrous desire take root? Days, weeks, months before. In fact, I have a pastor friend in Florida. He took over... The church that he's serving at because the former pastor fell out of ministry you know how the church found out on the nightly news he got caught in a prostitution sting and the members of their church saw their pastor on the news being carted away in handcuffs and guess what do you think that was his first time nope sadly no These decisions didn't happen in a day. That pastor didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, I think I'm going to go do that. These decisions happen over the course of days, weeks, months, sometimes years. Each of these people fed their specific heart idols to the point that when they got big enough, what happened? They stumbled and fell. You notice the progression of sin and the reality is some of you right now are playing with what we might call small idols of the heart. The progression of sin hasn't gone too far, but you hold it and you play with it and you're like, precious, precious. You're like, what is, what's up with that voice? Lord of the Rings, come on. I'm up with that. I'm, I'm hip with the kids, huh? Precious. Do you have something in your life that's precious? And maybe you're not seeing consequences yet, but what will happen over days, weeks, months, and years? Just like Israel. That stumbling block grows and grows, the progression of sin to the point where someday you fall. How do these idols trip us up? How do they cause us to stumble in iniquity? Anytime we give something or someone the power to grant us hope, Peace and satisfaction. We give it our trust. At that point, you're saying, God, I don't trust you to care for me. I don't trust you to provide for me. I don't trust that you know what's best for me. So, because of that lack of trust, who do I trust? Me. And now I make decisions and I put my hope or my trust in a person or a thing. And what will happen? I will be let down, and so will you. Because remember, these idols are spiritual counterfeits; they don't satisfy. Why? Because they're false substitutes for God. So, idolatry is what Chris was talking about. It's about worship, worshiping Christ. In fact, David Paulson reminds us that these idols of the heart they either give false promises or false warning. What's a false promise? A false promise is, is when the idol of the heart says, hey, I know God said don't do this, but if you do do it, here's what it's gonna do for you. It's gonna make people like you. It's gonna make you popular. It's gonna make you wealthy. It's gonna make you happy and whole. It's a false promise. What's the false warning? The serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says What? Oh, did God say that? No, 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 let me tell you. In fact, let me warn you. God doesn't know what he's talking about. If you eat the fruit, it's gonna make you like God. Let me warn you, don't listen to God. Let me warn you. If you do it God's way, you're not gonna be happy. In fact, it's gonna go, you're never gonna get ahead in business unless you do it this way. I'm just warning you. That's what the idols of our heart do. And let me just warn you, if all we do to try and solve our idolatry program is focusing on changing our behavior, what do we call that? Behavior modification. Memorize five verses on our struggle, get a new accountability partner, try to have a quiet time every day. Guess what? We are at risk. Because at that moment, what are you focusing on? The outside manifestations of your idol problem or the inside All we're doing is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic as it sinks. Well, let's try this. That didn't work. Let's try this. Nope, we're still sinking. Well, that didn't work. Let's try this. I'm going to get two accountability partners. I'm going to do two quiet times. In fact, I'm going to do three. I'm still yelling at my kids. I'm still angry. I'm still harsh. I still really like to buy women's shoes on Amazon. As if I was a woman, not me. That sounded really weird. (laughs) I'm going to edit that from the thing. Are we sure we want him in counseling? It sounded weird to me too. What's the point? If we don't deal with the idols of our heart, they will eventually trip us up, cause us to stumble further into iniquity and as you if you have the time just to read through the whole book of ezekiel you'll see this heart idols and the prophets heart idols and the elders where else are you going to see heart idols in the people of god ezekiel had a tough job but again jesus knows this doesn't he that's why in matthew 5:19, he says for out of the heart come evil thoughts murders adulteries fornications thefts false witness slanders Think about the three things: evil thoughts. It affects the what we think: murder, adultery, fornication, theft. It, it, it impacts what we do. False witness, slander. Now he's got the mouth involved. What I think, what I do, what I speak. Where does it come from? My circumstances? My boss? my spouse? No. From the heart. So if you're trying to be the leader in your industry with a booming and successful business to the point where your work consumes you, if if you're trying to be the ultimate godly mom with obedient kids, a godly home, godliness through control at any cost, if you're trying to be a physical specimen of health and shapeliness, you spend more money, more time, more effort on you, fill in the blank. What is it for you? What is it you want more than anything else? What is it that defines you? What is it that that you would say, this is what I identify as, or in? What is your world? This is the thing that brings you the most pleasure, and it's the thing you fear losing the most. It's the thing that you desire, the thing you think about, you talk about it, and it's also the thing that you pursue. What is it? I just want to encourage you this week, as you're praying Psalm 139, 23 to 24, Take time to say, Lord, what is it? How would I answer those questions? I've got them on the back for you. Because anytime we find our identity somewhere other than Christ, then we will begin to drift from following the Lord. We will spend more time investing in building and worshiping and pursuing our idols, just like these elders of Israel did, especially we're going to see this next week. And as long as things are going well, we seem to be fine. This is why someone can seem to be doing great at home or work or in the church. But if they're feeding their heart idols eventually, just like Mount Vesuvius that famously destroyed what city? Pompeii. I've been there. It's incredible. It's going to blow with devastating effect. Think about this. When the market takes a tumble, you lose your job. You lose your successful company. Everything you spent your life working for—your everything—is gone. Now, where are you to the leader of nothing? Or when your child goes off the rails, or you come to realize your marriage is in shambles because you were so focused on your kids, maybe you realize you're no longer the most godly woman on campus. The things that you spent your life pursuing—they're gone. Or when you realize that your 50-year-old body was very specific, will never look like it did when you were 21. You ever have that moment when you're looking in the mirror and you go, wow, when did that happen? I don't even look close to like I did when I was 21. No matter how hard I work, I have given up so many Oreo cookies over the last couple of years. If I could just be like I was when I was 21. Now I've got the money to buy whatever I want and I can't eat it. Yeah, think. Yeah, you're laughing at my pain, thanks. No matter how hard I work, someone else is more shapely, more healthy, more beautiful. Guess what, I'm in trouble. My identity wrapped up in the idolatrous desires of my heart has been shattered. The reality is, it's not just the sinful things. Even a good thing can become a God thing, and then it becomes a bad thing. And guess what? Now I'm sinning to get it. Or now I'm sinning because I didn't get it. Oh, you're going to block me from what I want? Buckle up. Blocks and gloves. Let's go. It's go time, honey. You and me, right now. I'm going to win this argument. I'm sinning because I'm afraid it's going to be taken away. Or I'm sinning by running to something or someone else as a refuge because Christ is just not enough. Whatever is ruling our heart is going to influence our actions and our choices. So if I make my career or my kids or my perfect Christian lifestyle or my health or my looks or the approval of others or control or peace or respect or any other person or thing an idol, it will take the place of God. I will give in to temptation. I will stumble. I will fall into sin. And that same idol that promises, what does it promise? Happiness, wholeness, peace, success, friends, whatever it is, that false promise will eventually bring guilt and shame. And it happened here with these elders of Israel, just like we're going to see next week. And it will happen to you and me. This morning, we have examined the first two principles describing, first, how idols get into our heart, and then secondly, at least the first dangerous consequence when that happens. So I want to challenge you to do those two things that I've already told you. First, pray Psalm 139 at least once a day. And would you begin to prayerfully ask God to help you as you answer those questions? What is it that is my world? What am I pursuing? What are the things that I get most angry about or I'm most fearful about? What are the things that drive me? What do I talk about? What do I invest in? And as you determine what those things are, with God's help, come back next week and we will be prepared to continue because there is hope. Come back next week and we'll talk about that. Let me pray. Lord God, I am so grateful that while my heart is deceitful and wicked and while even as a a man who wants to follow you, who loves you, is growing, Lord, sometimes I am self-deceived. Sometimes I don't see my heart clearly, Lord. So I am so thankful that you know my heart and that you love me enough that just like these elders of Israel, you're not going to tell them what they want, what their heart craves, but you are going to tell them what they need to hear. And so, Lord, this morning, we are asking for you to tell us not what we want, not what we think we need. Lord, would you show us what we need to see? Show us the idols of our heart. Show us when something or something has begun to capture our mind and our affections and our emotions more than you, so that we would see it, identify it, call it what it is, repent of it, turn from it, and turn to you alone. We know ultimately that will not only bring you glory, but it will actually be the best thing for us, because whatever separates me from you is to my own loss. Help us, Lord God. We want to be a church that only worships you. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.